American poet by the name of Chad Walsh and a theologian of the early 1900s wrote with uh, some precision when he said this, and I quote him, millions of Christians actually live in a sentimental haze of vague piety with soft organ music trembling in the light of stained glass windows. Their religion is a pleasant thing, demanding little more than lip service to a few harmless platitudes. And he goes on to say this provocative statement. It is much safer from Satan's point of view to vaccinate a person with a mild case of Christianity so as to protect him from the real disease. Well spoken. And how would he do that? I think part of Satan's strategy is for the believer to come to the conclusion that learning the Bible is sufficient all in and of itself. That it is the end of the process. That once you have learned the truth, you have gone all the way that you needed to go. You see, he would never try to get the Bible out of the hands of the believer. He knows that that probably wouldn't work. In fact, we all have four or five copies of it. He, he won't try to get the believer to discard the Bible. He'll try to get us to disregard the Bible. To learn it, but not live it. In fact, I believe that Satan is fully satisfied and content if the Christian will believe it so long as he does not behave it. A visitor emailed me some time ago telling me they'd visited Colonial several times and they come to the conclusion that I took the Bible way too seriously. What they meant though, and I read in between the lines, was that they really had no intention of living what they were hearing and so what needed to change in their opinion was not the way they lived but what I preached. The truth is God never intended the application of biblical truth to be taken anything other than very seriously. It is not optional. It's mandatory. Living out the Bible is not like picking up a hobby. It can be nothing more than a Sunday morning event or maybe Sunday night if you're a little carried away. Just don't take this out there. Leave it in here. Don't confront anybody with the truth, certainly not our own culture. Don't take it so seriously. I was handed a book by one of our deacons in our deacon fellowship that met most of the morning under the leadership of uh, some of the deacons and, and Pastor Burgraff. I was there in the morning to share a few words from Scripture and to pray, but as I was walking out, one of the deacons said, you got to read this book. It's a friend of mine who wrote it. It's his testimony, paperback, about 200 pages. The man's a surgeon, used to live in our community, attended an excellent church in our community, visited over here for a few times now, listens online, living in a different city in our state. So I took the book home with me and, and happened to open it. And yesterday I read several chapters and found it very, very fascinating. What I found interesting was his description of his life. He was churched, so to speak. He was religious. He was a good person, a doctor, a husband, a father. And yet the gospel penetrated the man's heart. His eyes were opened by the grace of God and radical changes flooded into his life in those early days, as you can only imagine, as everything began to shift and change. What I found interesting was how he explained his shock at telling 
his testimony to people in the community that he thought would be sympathetic and understanding. You know, other church members, uh, people that he thought were Christians as well. And he said, as I shared with them my testimony, it struck me that they would become a little nervous, shift around in their seat. Uh, Things would, would get awkward. And then, in fact, from one of his close friends, he got the statement, well, you know, that, that's good for you. And we're happy for you. He even had a pastor come and, and, and have an appointment with him in his practice, and he thought, this is going to be great. Again, this is in his first 30, 60 days of being converted, and uh, everything's fine until, you know, Christians pour water on the fire. So he had this pastor come in to visit him, and he thought this will be a wonderful audience, and he shared with him how God was radically changing his life. He told him he had understood the gospel. He hadn't really heard it before, but he understood and believed that he was a sinner and that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for his sin, and without it, he'd experienced the wrath of God, and he received the gift of God's grace. And, and the pastor just sat there with this blank look on his face. And then finally, at the end of it, he said, well, you know, that's good for you, but I don't really talk about sin or judgment or wrath. He said, I just tell people about the love of God. He couldn't understand why they didn't buy into this thing because he had not yet discovered that all the stuff in the Bible that you might learn and you might believe is better kept to yourself. God never intended his word, ladies and gentlemen, to remain indoors. It was designed for the outdoors. It was made to be communicated to your world by means of your walk. And as I was studying this particular paragraph in James about taking the truth and putting it into practice, I thought of that Nike commercial. Maybe it's because all the football I'm watching these days. But uh, that Nike commercial that says, just do it. You're watching the same football, evidently. Just, just do it. In other words, get serious about your game. Get serious about your sport. Be passionate about that. Whatever it is, whether you're swimming or riding or throwing or tackling or running or hiking or whatever it is, be ready to sweat. Be willing to put everything you've got into it. Just do it. And the world would go, right. And a Christian who says, hey, let's just do it. What are you, a fanatic? Keep that to yourself. So this is the intention of James to get us passionate, as it were, as he deals with this chapter. And we're just about to the end of chapter 1. If you can believe it, six messages. And all the people said, it's a miracle. That's what you're thinking. Well, already James has taken the truth where it matters in these major issues of our life. And he starts out by saying, okay, now, how are you going to live out there in the face of trials? How are you going to live out there in the face of trouble? How are you going to respond to that? And he effectively answers by saying, listen, you need to grow in your faith and your focus beyond asking for immediate deliverance. And instead of asking for that, ask for wisdom in how to respond to it. So that your suffering is not wasted as you choose your responses of faith and trust. All right? We deal with that. Well, how do you handle temptation? 
James says, here's how you live it out. You grow in patience and a desire for truly good gifts. They come from God, your father. Don't jump to embrace the ever-present, ever-ready, ever-at-hand, counterfeit, cheap imitations of the world's gifts. Flee those and wait for good gifts from your father. Well, how do you handle the truth of God's word? Well, if you're going to handle it properly, you're going to come in willingness to a, a tutoring session and you're going to approach your tutor with, with open ears and a closed mouth, you remember? Hands that are clean as you ask the Lord for forgiveness daily. Your heart's teachable and your spirit is humble. Now, that's, his, that's what James has to say about what it means to really live out your faith as it relates to trials and temptation and truth. And you get to the end of that and you say, how could God ever expect us to respond to trials and trouble and temptation and truth in that manner? I mean, who does he think we are? And James began with that when he said at the very outset of this letter, you happen to be a slave of God. You get that wrong and everything else doesn't fall into place. We are slaves of Jesus Christ, who is the Lord, the true and living God. Slaves can never take the words of their master too seriously, right? The slave of God would never consider the will of God an option. He just does it. We are his property. We belong to him And he is our master. And Jesus Christ reinforced this when he was speaking to his disciples. And Mark, that he was speaking to his disciples. And he said, why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I tell you to do? In other words, your life is not matching what your lips are saying. He says, but I tell you, whoever hears my words and then acts upon them will be a wise man who builds his house on a rock. Wisdom is putting God's words into action. In other words, the slave of God takes the word of God and builds his life upon it according to the will of God. So here's the question. How are we doing as slaves of God? You know, every time you come to the Bible and you approach it and you take it at face value, be ready for a challenge. And, and, and James is one challenge after another, isn't it? He, he just won't let us alone. Like the pastor I was talking to who's finishing up the book of James in his church, he he said to me, James is going to beat you up, and it's going to beat up the congregation. And I understand that, and so do you, after just getting into a little bit of this, because he just puts it right out there. You're a slave. You're his property. Do what he says. Here's how you respond to trials and temptation and truth. Now, here's another checkup. How are you doing as a servant of Christ? In order for James to take us into the truth of that question and answer it for us, he'll take us into two environments. One, he'll take us into a classroom. And secondly, he'll take us into a dressing room. Now, first, the classroom. James chapter 1, verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now, the word for hearers here was immediately understood by James' audience and the university setting of first century Greece, Rome. They had the word for Greek students, 
applied in, in this, with this term, a hearer, acroates. This was a student in the university who was an auditor. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely auditors. This refers to an attentive student who's interested in the material, who shows up for class. But an auditor is one who sits down in class with the other students, has the same advantages of learning, and can benefit from the teacher and the truth heard, and is, by the way, interested in all of that. The difference between an audit student and a credit student in the first century and the 21st century is that an audit student has the same advantages but does not accept the same responsibilities. He doesn't have to take the quizzes. He can take the day off when the final exam is given. He doesn't have to do a term paper and have the professor examine his thinking. There's nothing wrong with being an audit student. How many of you have audited a class? I have. I'm raising my hand. Look at that. Okay. How many of you would like to have audited more? Yes, absolutely. And why? We want the advantage of the material and the learning, just not the responsibility. Or perhaps in, in some part in your life, you could only afford to be an audit student or whatever. But here's the point. The problem that, that James is, is surfacing is at the end of the class, or we could broaden it to say the education, an auditor cannot become a practicing lawyer, a practicing physician a practicing nurse, a licensed mechanic, a licensed engineer. Why? Well, they they were in the class. They had the benefits. But they did not fulfill the responsibilities. And while they get credit for being in class, that's where they basically wanted it to stay. They didn't want to take any of it home. That's what you call homework and late-night assignments. And challenges and difficulty. So James is saying, if you want to know where you are right now, ask yourself, do I want to audit God's curriculum of faith in my life? Would I rather sit it out? Or am I willing to do the homework and follow him and attempt to please him? Now let me get even more practical than James. Let me illustrate what he's saying here. This is a person who today will attend a church, but never join the church. This is a person who wants the benefits of the assembly, uh, the climate control, the chair, the parking spot, the room for the kids, and all of that, but not shoulder the responsibility of, well, whether it's the mortgage or operations or fixing up the place or maybe serving in a way to help those who show up who come over. One author has really rattled a lot of cages in a a little hardback book when he recently talked about our generation doing just this. He talks about our generation is dating the church and refusing to marry the church, so to speak. In fact, maybe more than one at a time, I find something attractive about this one and this one and this one, but I'll never marry because I haven't found the perfect one. So I'm just dating the church. I think that shows up in a lot of different ways, whether it's the need for individuals to serve in ministry, uh, whether it's the offering that's taken 
You know, I rarely say anything about money except in greenhouse class. But, you know, the average giving per capita in America among Christians is $20 a week. Now, you ask yourself the question, what did I just give? And how much am I giving to support the ministries of Christ in his church? Am I dating? Or am I really undergirding the ministry with what God has given me? Let me give you another illustration since you enjoyed that one so much. Here's another one. This is, this is the person who knows Christ. Again, now, I'm talking to believers. I know there are unbelievers in here, and I'm glad you've come. But I'm talking to believers because this is uh, to whom James is writing. He's challenging us all to live it out. Okay? But this is the individual, the believer, who believes in Jesus Christ, who has yet to publicly testify to that relationship through believer's baptism. Wait a second, that's going to make me uncomfortable. That means I've got to get up in front of people. That would be a little awkward. You know, not many people get to see me when my hair's wet. And I'm not sure I want a thousand people to see that, or whatever it might be. You mean that I need to act upon something that I believe? Well, now you're catching on. It's exactly what James is saying. James is saying, in our vernacular, just do it. You move from spectating to participating. You move from dating to responsible marriage. Now, there are those who would say that James is not talking about Christians as auditors here. They would argue that the auditor here is an unbeliever. I think that misses the context of what James is saying and the context of to whom James is writing. It might preach a little more easily, but I think it actually lets the church off the hook. It misses the context here of maturing faith. If you go back in time, you find the reformer by the name of Martin Luther, who really didn't like the book of James. He called it a right strawy epistle, and he didn't want it included in the canonical record. And the reason for that is because he was passionate about justification by faith alone. That was the string on his fiddle. And in that particular time in in our world uh, and church history, that was necessary because of the corrupted church and all of the merit systems that it had added to the gospel. And so Martin Luther preached sola fide, faith alone, along with sola scriptura. We go to the scriptures as our rule for faith and and practice. And, and, And I think he didn't like James because he missed the context of James, he believed that there was a contradiction between James and Paul. And we're going to deal with this a little later on. But just as a thumbnail sketch, let me, let me tell you, Paul was interested in the definition of saving faith. And it is without works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That's the definition of the gospel. And you need to get that right. But James is not not so much interested in the definition of the gospel as he is the demonstration of the gospel, the demonstration of the faith. And you cannot demonstrate faith without works because if you try to do that, your faith will be viewed as dead, useless, meaningless. See, Paul was talking about being justified in the sight of God. James is talking about being justified in the sight of men. 
So James is not contrasting a believer with an unbeliever. He's contrasting a maturing, active believer with an immature, mark that, inactive believer. In fact, the very verb tense of this verse as it begins in verse 22, but prove yourselves doers. Your translation may read, be doers of the word. The verb tense is present tense. It means do it, keep doing it, don't stop doing it. He's exhorting the believer to grow, to mature, because the temptation is to stop. The temptation is to audit that particular trial. I'm going to sit that one out. He's saying, show yourselves more and more doers. The immature believer wants whatever he learns in church to stay in church. We, we put in the hour. This is where it stays. The immature believer may be confronted with something in the Bible, but he's going to want it to stay in the Bible. Don't give me any homework. Don't give me any late night challenge or assignment. I will audit my way through the Christian life. James is saying if if you want to be able to practice your faith, you want to be a practitioner, like that doctor or nurse or mechanic or engineer, you can't audit God's Word. You can't take it or leave it. In fact, James goes on at the end of verse 22, and he gives a warning. He says, if you do that, you're going to be deluding yourself, right? Those who are merely hearers delude themselves. Literally, you've gotten off track in your thinking. The word for delude, parlegizomai, carries with it the idea of cheating or defrauding yourself. In other words, whenever you hear the word taught or you read the word for yourself and you decide in your mind and heart... I will not do that. I will not put that into practice. Among other things, James focuses on this. You end up cheating yourself. You defraud yourself of the gifts of growth and maturity and what that deeper walk in faith and with Christ can mean. Let me illustrate it this way. You take your little kids to the Lincoln Memorial and what do they want to do? They want to run them down the stairs. This is great. Look at that set of stairs. They're running up and down and up and down. And, and you, as an older, more mature person, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're reading what's engraved in stone. You're reveling in, in what that man meant to the nation. You're looking at Scripture, and you're thanking God it's carved in stone and not painted. That could be painted over. And you walk away... And your children walk away, and you're all happy. That was great. For your children, it was great to be able to run them downstairs. And they have a sense of pleasure and satisfaction. For those who are more mature, they understand the gravity and the sense and the awe and the blessing of that monument and what it means. That's the idea here. He says you're going to cheat yourselves if all you want to do is run them down the stairs. There's so much more to appreciate about our Lord. Don't miss out on depth and growth in him. There's one more thought here I want to show you before we leave this classroom illustration. James is talking about a doer as he begins verse 22. He uses the word poetes. It's actually a noun form. 
It's a reference to a group of people who are becoming this. They are becoming poetes. They are becoming, literally translated, poets. It's the word we get our word poetry from, or poet. He's, he's talking about creatively serving God. I find this fascinating. He's not talking about obeying with the idea that, okay, I'll do the minimum. Uh, I don't really care what it looks like. Uh, I got it handed in. You know, the term paper, I mean, it might have stuff hanging off it, and it might be all splotchy, and, and I've, I've misspelled words, and, and uh, the pages aren't in order, but I did it. Or you can go all the way in growth and maturity, and you give God your creative best. You give God your passionate service. You give God a desire to serve him with excellence. And if the church needs any testimony right now to our world, it is that we pursue our reflection of God's character through excellent work. No matter what we do. See, immaturity says, I'll get the job done with the least amount of energy, the least amount of thought. And you probably work next to somebody like that, don't you? I mean, they work harder at getting out of work than they work. And they're very creative. And you think, why don't you use that creativity to actually work? That's the point here. Serve God creatively. That is, how can you improve what you do? How can you do it better, no matter how mundane? He's talking about servants of God who don't just put in time But they say, how can I do that better and what can I do next? They reflect then the excellence of God's character in the excellence of their work. And their testimony brings glory to God. Now speaking of a reflection, James takes us out of the classroom and he opens another door and this time he leads us into a dressing room. Look at verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Once he's looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Now let's break this down and find out exactly what he's talking about. James is basically saying as an overview, anybody who listens to the word but doesn't take action is like a man looking in a mirror. He sees his natural face the word is the word Genesis. Literally, he sees the face he was born with. I think James is, is uh, using a, a taste of humor here. He sees the face he was born with, but then walks away without doing anything about it. Now, I think James is suggesting here with some sense of humor, why would anybody, he's asking, why would anybody do that? I mean, looking into a mirror usually leads you to take some kind of remedial action. It's most often emergency action. All right. None of us showed up today looking exactly like we looked when we first saw ourselves in the mirror, right? We, we, we put in a tremendous amount of, of work and repair and reconstruction, whatever. I love James' choice of words, by the way, under the inspiring influence of the Holy Spirit, even his use of the word for man is specifically intended. Verse 23, if anyone is a hearer of the word and and not a doer, he is like a, a man 
who looks at his face. He's not using the generic term like he did at the beginning. If anyone, if anybody is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a, and he uses the specific word, he is like a male. He's like a man who looks at his face in the mirror. And how does a man look at his face in the mirror? A man glances into the mirror. A woman gazes into the mirror. A man looks in the mirror and says, yep, that's me. A woman looks, oh my. Just count the pieces of machinery it takes to get a woman ready versus a man. Now, none of us men would complain, right, men? You're, you're not going to say anything. You're, you're, you're on your own, Stephen. You, <laughs> and no dog in this fight. One of the first things Marcia bought me when we were dating in college, one of the first things after we dated a few months was a comb. It just showed up in my college box, a comb. And this is 1977. I had a head of hair. You're going to have to use your imagination on that one. I don't need a comb anymore. Then it was great. You're just kind of, yeah, okay, sure, great. There we go. Off to class. Got a comb. She took up where my mother failed and left off. See, this is, this is the inspired clarity of James' illustration. A woman is not usually going to step in front of a mirror and do nothing. A man just might. In fact, let's try an experiment. I want, I'm going to have, have you stand up in just a minute, so get ready. I want every woman in here that has a mirror in her possession right now to stand up. Go ahead. Just stay standing. Have a mirror in your possession. Okay? Thank you. I want every man who has a mirror in his possession (laughs) to stand up. That settles it. Case closed. Okay? (laughs) And listen, a woman is not going to step in front of a mirror and do nothing. A man probably will. See, James is not pulling words at random. Don't look in the word like, like the typical male looks in a mirror. Yeah, fine. No. Now here's having our attention now with the illustration. James goes deeper with application. Look at verse 25. But, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, that is the law which produces liberty. He's not thinking of the Mosaic law. He's actually talking about this principle, this law we are enslaved to, which is the grace of God's gospel, which has given us freedom. You're bound by that and abides by it. Not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed. Makairos, he'll be fulfilled, will be satisfied. And what he does. Now James is talking about what we need to do, and that is male or female, look intently into the mirror of this perfect law of liberty, the law of grace which has captured us, the gospel, the truth of God. James says we're, we're abiding by it. I love that word. It means to stick close to it. We're looking and we're sticking close to it. He says, we're we're not going to be forgetful hearers. 
the word for forgetful, you might think, oh boy, I've got problems here because I am so forgetful. And let me tell you, I am. I have to have notes pinned in my pocket when I go to work. I forget anything and everything. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about someone who comes to some cognizance of who he is and he chooses. I'm not going to do anything about it. In fact, I'm going to forget I ever saw that. I'm going to forget I ever learned that. He willingly disregards it. That's the idea here. But James says, look, what I want you to do is I want you to look intently into the gospel of God. And the words looking intently have the nuance of stooping, of bending, as if the the mirror is on a table and you've got to bend over to look carefully. See, that implies, what James is implying, is humility as we approach the Word of God. See, pride fogs up the mirror. Pride looks at its reflection, and it has only one desire, and that's to save face. Humility says, let me improve upon my reflection, my face, and so conform a little more to the image of Christ. F.B. Meyer, the British pastor and commentator, born in 1847, wrote it this way, commenting on this text. He says, I used to think of God's blessings on shelves, one above the other, and that the taller we grew in character, the easier we could reach them. I now find that God's gifts are on the shelves one beneath the other. And it is not a question of growing taller, but of stooping lower, that we have to go down, always down, as we mature to get his best gifts. It's a great thought. James says, you do that, and you're going to be blessed David the psalmist wrote it this way, I walk about in liberty, in in true freedom. Why? Because I'm bound to your precepts. Being bound to the law, the word of God, brings freedom. And so with humility, David has this kind of experience and, and stooping toward the word as he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any hurtful way in me. Is there anything about my complexion that needs to change? See, that's the way you respond to the the truth of the Word. You stoop down to see, to learn, and then you go out to live. One contemporary of of F.B. Meyer was a British pastor named Robert Chapman. I've read a couple of his biographies. Robert Chapman was born in 1802 and died in 1903. Ninety-nine years. He was single all his life. Pastored in England, a little church. Charles Spurgeon called him the saintliest man he'd ever met. Fascinating biography. But on one occasion, Chapman was giving advice to someone who really wanted to make a difference for Jesus Christ. And he was asking, okay, now, how do I do that? It's always challenging to be in ministry or leadership in a Sunday school class, a Bible study, and somebody asks you a question that needs a volume. 
and they want a sentence. Just give me a sentence. And I love his sentence. He said to this one, here's how you can make a difference for Christ. Keep low, look up, and press forward. Keep low. In other words, stay humble. Look up. In other words, stay focused on Christ who ran the race before you and press forward. Live out what you learn. That's just another way of saying just do it, which is exactly what James is saying here. Don't be content with just listening, even though you have two ears open. You need to learn it. Don't stop after learning it. You need to live it. Do the homework. Practice it. Practice it. Practice it. Those who practice are able then by that practicing capable of discerning between good and evil, the writer of Hebrews said. It is that which is our guarantee to spiritual maturity. It is looking into the word as we do, being convicted by the truth because we see a reflection that we ought to be that we are not. And we say, oh God, you're giving me something new to live and I will live it. I'll falter, I'll fail, I will be faithless. Thank you that you are faithful. But I'm not going to say, Lord, look, I'm auditing. Don't give me any more homework. I don't care to practice anymore. James exhorts us, don't, don't. To the believers in the first century and the believers in the 21st century, do the homework, practice it, live it, do it. In his book, Improving Your Servant, I'll close with this, Chuck Swindoll repeated a parable that I have used myself in days long gone. He comments wonderfully on the truth of this paragraph, and I'll read you his version of the parable. Let's pretend that you work for me. In fact, you are my executive assistant in a company that is growing rapidly, and I'm the owner, and I'm interested in expanding overseas. To pull this off, I make plans to travel abroad and stay overseas until a new branch office can be established. I make all the arrangements to take my family in this move to Europe, which will last between six to eight months. As my assistant, I leave you in charge of all the busy stateside organization. I tell you that I'll write regularly to you and give you direction and instruction. I leave, you stay, and months pass by. A flow of letters are mailed from Europe and received by you at the national headquarters, and in them I spell out for you my expectations. Finally, I return. Soon after my arrival, I drive down to the office, and I'm stunned. Grass and weeds have grown up high. A few windows facing the street are broken. I walk into the receptionist's room, and she's doing her nails and listening to her favorite radio station. I look around and notice the wastebaskets are overflowing. The carpet hasn't been vacuumed, and no one seems concerned that the owner has even returned. I ask about your whereabouts, and someone in the crowded lounge area points down the hall and yells over the radio, I think he's down there. Disturbed, I move in that direction, and I bump into you as you are finishing a chess game with our sales manager. 
I ask you to step into my office, only to discover that has been temporarily converted into a television room. I ask, what in the world is going on? What do you mean? Well, look at this place. Didn't you get any of my letters? Letters? Yeah. We got every one of them. As a matter of fact, we had letter study every Friday night. We divided all the personnel into small groups to discuss the letters. Some of the things you wrote were really interesting, and you'll be pleased to know that few of us have actually committed to memory some of your sentences and paragraphs, and one or two employees even memorized an entire letter and more. Great stuff in those letters. Okay, I say. Okay, you got my letters. You studied them. You discussed them in small groups. You memorized them. What did you do about them? Do? Um, we didn't do anything about your letters. We're still studying them. If it's any encouragement, know that this problem stretches all the way back to the first century and to the time of James the Apostle and the Christians who would read these letters that are circulating and the ink is barely dry. And James is challenging them and us. There is a danger in hearing a sermon. There is a danger in reading a letter. There is a danger in having a devotional that you read. There is a danger in memorizing a passage of Scripture to say. The danger is you would say, I learned something. Hey, that was good. I got something out of that. That devotional page, wow, right on the money. That takes care of my day. I'm good for the week, the month, the year. James is effectively saying you're not really learning anything unless you desire to live it out with creativity and excellence so that Christ is glorified and we are truly changed a little bit more into the reflection of Christ that we see in the Word of God. For, by the way, to look into the mirror of God's Word is to both see the complexion of our soul and the character of the Savior. To see the complexion of our soul is discouraging and challenging. But to be exposed to the character of our Savior of whom we sang And the power of his cross gives us energy and hope and grace as we obey him. And we say, yes, Lord, your servant is not only listening, but I'm willing to live it out there. I'm willing to just do it. With heads bowed and eyes closed for just a moment to... Shut everyone else out. Let's make sure that question marks and commas are replaced with periods. Would you thank the Lord Jesus for the cross right now? Thank him that he paid the penalty of all our sin, past, present, future. And by his grace, we are already as his sons and daughters seated in the heavenlies. That is our position. We need to thank him for that because the enemy would blind us to that. 
And now to the practice. Based upon the position. Sticking close to the word. Looking intently for the purpose of change. Refusing to disregard it. Maybe there is something in your life that the Spirit of God is already saying, confess that, offer that to me. I've covered that, but you have to be willing to acknowledge it if you want to mature. And say to the Lord, would you help me today, strengthen me today as I choose with your accompanying power to demonstrate my faith at work, at home, wherever. I'm willing to take the mundane tasks that you have given me, whatever they may be, and do it with excellence and creativity because it reflects your, your nature and your character. And should anybody see, we would want our work to reflect with excellence, your character of excellence. Whatever it is, you talk to the Lord for just a few moments here and let me address someone that may be here today without Christ personally. Having saved you from death to life. And maybe if that doctor that I talked about had an appointment with you and he told you the things that have changed in his life you would fidget because you have no interest in that kind of desire for Christ. You have no interest in the word. I'm glad you're here. But maybe you want help to know that you belong to Christ. The end of this service is not the end of the invitation. And it goes throughout the week. Father, we thank you We thank you for your plan of grace and that our names were written in those scars of your son. We thank you for the life that we have and the enslavement that we can actually prosper from and enjoy because you are our master and following you brings liberty. So cause us, Father, we pray today to express back to you a little bit of that love you've expressed to us. Not just today, but in life. Why don't we conclude by singing as a benediction our love to him. I love you, Lord. said